And we're standing outside of this wonderland Looking sober, even sober bereft Like a Bowery bomb when he finally understands The bottle's empty and there's nothing left I don't know how it happened It was faster than the eye could flip But all I can do Hello and welcome to episode 1409 of Effectively Wild, a baseball podcast brought to you by Fangraphs and our Patreon supporters. I'm Meg Rowley of Fangraphs, and I am joined as always by Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer. Ben, how are you? I'm doing all right. Good. Today we will be talking about the best five players of the 2000s. (laughs) (laughs) It seems like that's all people want us to do now after that last episode. That went over well. Yeah, I'm so glad that people enjoyed it. You were so concerned that we would have like 10 minutes of conversation i'm like i don't know ben we managed to go for like an hour and a half when you and i don't have a predefined topic (laughs) i know (laughs) i was thinking like well how's this possibly gonna like okay so we're just gonna say our our top fives and (laughs) and we'll probably have similar top fives and then we'll say what the top five were and then that'll be that (laughs) but that took like an hour and 20 minutes yeah (laughs) so it seems like whatever we're doing we end up talking for the same amount of time so (laughs) Uh, we just like chatting with each other about baseball. What a nice thing. Yeah, it was fun. But it yeah. seems like it could be a whole spin-off franchise for us. Yeah. It could just be like effectively five or something. We'll just do like <laughs> top five pitchers and hitters for every previous decade. Someone actually asked that we do the worst five pitchers oh. and hitters of, of each decade because because it's kind of difficult to like stick around long enough to be the worst in yeah. terms of war. Like you have to pile up some playing time to get that next negative war up there so yeah we'll, we'll maybe we'll do something like that again we'll just slowly morph into a podcast where we never look at war which will just be <laughs> the opposite of all the previous episodes <laughs> well we have you know 1400 and what seven of them prior to to then that were mm-hmm. pretty war focused so it seems yeah. like we could tip the scales a little bit yeah since sam's not here today we can gang up again on his minimum inning idea which oh, uh gotten a lot of feedback to that a lot of people have it stuck in their heads a lot of people like the sound of it a lot of people have suggested improvements or what they see as improvements either just further shortening it to minning just to to reflect the inning itself someone else suggested the austere inning which i kind of like yeah a bunch of people pointed out, and I think this is a good point, that you can have sub-three-pitch innings. In fact, right. these days you can have zero-pitch innings if you just intentionally walk someone and then pick them off and do that three times. Not yeah. that that's going to happen, but you can certainly have a, a two-pitch inning. So it is technically not the minimum inning. So to me, that is a disqualifying. We, we can't use minimum inning because of that. Plus, it's just impossible to say. It's <laughs> yeah. impossible to say. Yeah, I just did you, it. I was pretty impressive, but yeah. Yeah, you did, you did fine. It's impossible for me to say. <laughs> I have to slow down to an unnatural speaking speed mm-hmm. uh, in order to do it. Even then, it sounds strange. <laughs> yeah. <sighs> anyway, apologies Terrible. to anyone who had phenomena stuck in their head for the, the rest I of that still, day. I still, <laughs> still now, you know, we're going to wake up in the middle of the night going, I don't know. Yeah, there's a good cover of that song by Cake that I have been enjoying in the day or two since. But Yeah, I thank you to whoever, I can't remember now who it was, but thank you to whoever posted that in the Facebook group because mm-hmm. I had not heard that previously and enjoyed it very much. Yeah. 
So, bunch of stuff to talk about today. One thing I wanted to mention, because I guess it happened before our previous episode, but we were focused on our task, was that Mike Trout threw a ball 98.6 miles per hour, which like <laughs> made me do like a genuine double take when yeah. I saw that. He It was Monday night at Dodger Stadium, and he threw just like a perfect, perfect strike to the plate to get Max Muncy. And it was his hardest throw of the StatCast era, and I would have to think his hardest throw of his career because his arm has gotten progressively better. But I didn't realize that it had gotten to the point where he would just rip off like a 99-mile-per-hour strike. Like, I did not know he had this in his repertoire. It's something that he's worked on because whenever he has anything that could be called a weakness or approaching a weakness, he seems to just target that and make it a strength. But... I mean, he had gone from below average to average, but now I guess is just comfortably above average. I guess he is just legitimately a five-tool player at this point. There's nothing he can't do. I enjoyed our surprise in the moment and then how quickly that surprise abated. <laughs> yeah. Right? Because there are plenty of of uh, outfielders, plenty of center fielders specifically who, you know, we've seen we've seen great throws before. It's not like Mike Trout invented the great throw or mm-hmm. anything like that. It is a context. We have a context for it within baseball. We just didn't have a context for it for Mike Trout. And the thing about him that is so amazing is that I think probably more than any other player in baseball, pitchers included, our ability to immediately absorb new Mike Trout skills, it's just, it it takes so little time. We can just do it in record time because it's like, well, of course. I mean, sure. (laughs) Yeah. I believe it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Seems right. Yeah. Right? He's one of those guys where you're like, yeah, it seems right. Yeah. I mean, that same game, he hit a 450-foot dinger and it's like, (laughs) sure, whatever. Like, we've seen him do that before. So every kind of highlight he now supplies, like this was the one kind of highlight that we hadn't really seen him ever give us. I mean, he's made good throws before, I'm sure, sure. but I couldn't have told you like Mike Trout's best throw or most impressive throw really no. whenever we see a Mike Trout highlight. It's usually that he hit a 450-foot dinger or he ran really fast or he made a nice catch or he robbed a homer. I mean, he does all those things fairly regularly. But this one was the one thing that he didn't really do, and now he does it. So, yeah, I don't know. I guess it makes sense if pitchers can go to velocity-gaining programs and, and add velocity, then I don't see why a center fielder couldn't do the same thing. But I'd love to know what exactly he has done differently because right. I guess it's it's mechanical changes. I think like maybe he's changed his arm action and maybe it's just a new workout regimen, something that he's doing to target the muscles that are involved in throwing. I don't know what it is, but it is really impressive. He's just the best. I, I'm having an experience that is very, I'm about to label this feeling as being quite unfair of me. It's just like the worst. I shouldn't say this at all. The fact that I'm going to admit to it is going to make some people be like, Meg, <laughs> that's not reasonable. I'm kind of mad at Cody Bellinger for being close to Mike Trout in war right now. Yeah. He's not there, but like he's close mm-hmm. and it makes me mad. <laughs> it makes me angry with him in a way that is totally unreasonable. <laughs> 
particularly because he plays in the National League. And so we can just have two very good players in each league. I mean, we have a lot more than just two, but we can have two very good players atop their respective leagues just doing a great job having incredible seasons, and that is fine. <laughs> and that should make me happy, but it makes me mad because Mike Trout's year is so phenomenal and we get to enjoy it, but I I will admit to enjoying it a little bit less because Cody Bellinger is within spitting distance, which is silly because in, in a lot of years where Mike Trout was the best player in baseball, there was another guy who was like kind of hanging out, being like, hey, I'm close. Don't I get credit for that? And we were like, nah. <laughs> so it's not new, but it's making me mad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So. I mean, I don't mind if people's were rivals, Mike Trout's, if it's just like a different guy every year. If there were, sure. I, I don't really, as long as Mike Trout is at this peak, like I, I don't even want a second Mike Trout. Not that there ever could be one, not oh. that there's ever been one, but that's why he's so special. But right. I kind of like that other people will come close for a year at a time, but that's all. Yeah. <laughs> it's like Christian Yelich out of his mind, Bellinger out of his mind, Mookie Betts out of his mind, Josh Donaldson right. out of his mind, Miguel Cabrera out of his mind. Like year after year, there's someone who is having his career year who maybe comes close to Trout that year, but usually doesn't quite catch him and usually is not there the next year or the previous year, which in a way that kind of drives home just how good Trout how is to me. That is. like the best other possible person yeah. having his best possible year maybe can come close to Trout one time <laughs> and Trout does it every year. Yeah, that's a much healthier way to think about it. But instead, I'm thinking about how I'm mad and also just really impressed with how good Xander Bogarts has been. Yes, he has. Yeah. Although there was one thing that Trout could not do this week, which was hit Ross Stripling, recent Effectively Wild guest, who when he was on, we talked to him about his inability to retire Mike Trout to that point in his career. Trout had gotten him every time. But this week, Stripling faced the Angels, and he got Mike Trout out the two times he faced him. So good job, Ross. We'll we'll have to have him back on sometime to see how he figured out Mike Trout. Yeah, I... uh... It's one of those things where I I tend to think that we are hyper conscious of some of those those ma- specific matchup issues in a way that like not every player is but that some players certainly are but that not every player is but I think that he's told that story uh to a couple of people mm-hmm. since that happened right he's like I I got him I finally got him <laughs> right I he's would told think that so. story yeah I would think yeah. so. I would tell that story. <laughs> Probably podcasted about it. I don't know. But yeah, it took some courage for him to come on and be like, yeah, Mike Trout owns me, knowing that he was scheduled to face the Angels like yeah. in a, a pretty short time. And yeah, yeah, even after confessing that, that was maybe he just had to admit it to the world that he had a, a Mike Trout problem in order to conquer that problem. Yeah. See, therapy is good for everyone. <laughs> yeah. Anything on your mind? Uh, I would like it if uh, some baseball teams would make some trades. Mm, Yes. I'm, you know, the deadline is a weird, it's a strange exercise. It presents us with a problem that is a problem for people who do our jobs, which is that, you know, sometimes it like wrecks your weekend 
Mm-hmm. And that's okay, because then you get to write stuff and people read it. But we are incentivized to root for a very particular kind of deadline. Uh, and normally, that is a is a good thing, like a healthy trade deadline, I think indicates a lot of teams trying to improve and, mm-hmm. and get better for for the last couple of months of the season with the hope of making the postseason. And so it it is a particular problem that most people might say is like kind of selfish, but I think actually lines up very nicely with the, the broader incentives that fans have, which is that you want teams to be getting better. And so they should get on with it. <laughs> yeah, it would be nice it's if Friday. also if they didn't do everything they're going to do in like one day so that yeah don't do that <laughs> yeah I, especially you for know, you as that's hard. someone who will yeah. be frantically <laughs> directing traffic and yeah, saying we I need a piece on this and we need a piece on that yeah. and then you will have to be editing all those pieces and posting them as quickly as possible and that will yes, not be convenient yeah we're we're properly staffed for mm-hmm. it but uh yes it can be quite frantic so you know why not ease in you guys yeah just like do a do a little do a little friday afternoon business i'm scheduled to go to a mariners game tomorrow so i imagine that 115 is when things will will pick up but i've already warned the folks i'm going with that i might um, be editing from my phone <laughs> and drinking only water <laughs> Well, the Cubs have acquired Derek Holland, so maybe that'll oh. break the seal. That'll get things yeah. started. <laughs> the the blockbuster we were all we were all waiting for. Yeah. A DFA trade. <laughs> right. Yeah. Let's go. It's not even it doesn't even tell us anything about like, oh, maybe the Giants are selling or something no, because it doesn't. they had already sold Derek Holland. <laughs> so yeah. That's uh I, I have been reading Giants trade rumors with interest and just yes. before we started, I saw one that said they're like 90% not likely to trade Bumgarner and Will Smith or something, which right. I don't know. But I saw another earlier rumor from John Morosi, which was a lot of fun, which was that the Giants had a high-level scout at Matthew Boyd's start in Detroit on yeah. Tuesday, which supports Mark Feinstein's report about the Giants potentially buying in the coming days. Man. <laughs> There's like a 0.5% chance that this happens, but I like that we're yes. in a world where, where we're talking about the Giants trading for one of the top players on the trade market with just a couple days to go before the deadline. Yeah, I have also been watching with with interest and some amount of um, sadness and sympathy the swirling rumors around Noah Syndergaard. Yes, um, I you know as a a person invested on some level, although you know to a, an increasingly small degree in the Seattle Mariners, I know how it feels to be sad. <laughs> uh, and I feel that the sadness of the Mariners fans dealing as they are with a team that is quite bad and an uncertain future and some just truly devastating quotes from Felix Hernandez about his own future in, in the game. We have it easy because the worst thing I think as a fan is to look at your franchise and think they might trade one of the best players on the team and one of the better players in baseball. And we have very little confidence that they will either get a prospect return that merits the trade, and even if they do, that their player development will mess up <laughs> those players. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, you know, I, I, fans react strongly, and I think that there are arguments to be made about how uh, player dev and the Mets uh, organization can be improved. But they, you know, they have had some good homegrown players. Yeah. Uh, but that feeling is terrible mm-hmm. because 
you, you, there's no winning. <laughs> yeah. There is only sadness. So uh, I'm sorry, Mets fans. You are officially in a worse emotional spot than Mariners fans, and that takes some doing. Yeah, Joel Sherman reported that there's some sentiment within the Mets, or maybe it's just Mets ownership probably, that they're afraid to trade one of their players to a quote-unquote smart team that might actually make that player better because it will make them look bad. Which, my stars. <laughs> what a thing to say out loud in front of people. Oh. It's like then the answer is to go figure out what those guys are doing and do that in-house. What right. are you doing admitting to that sort yeah. of nonsense? Or even if you think that's the truth, like A, let that player go and be good somewhere. And, yes. and B, like just ask for the return that you think a player as good as that player will become would right. merit. It'd just be like, well, right. if we think you're going to make this guy better, then give us more in return <laughs> but yeah that just doesn't reflect well on them in any way but yeah what should we expect at this point yeah what a mess what a mess the Mets I don't know what to make of Cindergard right now like I don't know conceptually speaking it's not the worst idea I suppose to trade him just because he's not under team control for that much longer right he's a free agent after he's a free 20. agent in 2022 okay well that's a while I guess but yeah I don't know I, I don't know if the Mets will be good again he's kind of on a downward trajectory or at least yeah there's always an injury concern i think with someone who throws as hard as he does and has missed some time and he hasn't been quite as effective this year either so i don't know i wouldn't be surprised if he went somewhere else and pitched at a cy young level yeah man he is just uh he has to really not be happy about his roster photo this year. That is not what I was going to talk about, but I am now noticing that. Like, Noah, what are we doing? Let's cry for help here. Um, I I was disheartened to – because, you know, syndergaard has been one of the guys named as one of the big starting pitching chips along with Boyd and potentially Bauer. And I thought there was more daylight between Syndergaard and Bauer this year. And there's not a ton mm -hmm. in terms of the performances they've already turned in. Although, you know, I think the profile for what you get in terms of control and whatnot is obviously different. I would point out, because I just like to brag about our player pages because they've gotten better, that as we're going into trade deadline season and you're like, hey, how much, uh, how long until that guy's a free agent? How many options does he have left? You can just look on his Fangrass player page and we got all that information for you mm -hmm. right there. It's super yeah. convenient. So Thank just, you, Jason you know. Martinez. Yeah, just go check that out. It's pretty cool. I, yeah, I don't know what to to make of Syndergaard either. I imagine that the return would probably still be fairly weighty yes. because I don't know. Can you imagine like no Syndergaard as an Astro? That sounds like a thing that we <laughs> yeah, probably shouldn't let happen. That sounds scary. Yeah. <laughs> that sounds very scary. I mean, you still have to worry about the injury stuff, and I think that's true of every pitcher but especially of a guy as you noted with his uh, particular profile but man that sure sounds scary it seems unlikely to happen because i don't know the astros trade deadline situation seems sort of murky because mm -hmm. i don't know how people feel about kyle tucker but it seems like trading noah Syndergaard to the yankees is a better idea than trading him to the braves but i guess that we're not dealing with a typical front office so who knows <laughs> right yeah mm -hmm. Or at least that that front office is not dealing with typical ownership. Ownership, but. yes. I think, <laughs> I think uh, yes. Both of those things are true and interacting with one another in ways that seem designed to make people in New York crazy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's 
kind of curiously similar to the 2017 situation, I guess, with the Astros, where at the end of the regular trade deadline, they felt comfortable standing pat. And then between July 31st and August 31st, they decided we need an ace. Let's go get Justin Verlander. Except this year, you can't do that after July 31st. So if they are going to do that, you better do it now. But they did it that time. I I think they had some injuries in August, and they also played very poorly in August, and they had Dallas Keuchel publicly complaining that they hadn't made any moves at July 31st, and so that kind of goaded them into doing that thing. But now you don't really get that post-July 31st period to have extra incentive to make the moves. So that's why we thought there might be more moves, but on the other yeah. hand, we thought there might be fewer moves because of the way the standings are set up this particular year. And thus far, that's been the case. It's been like a quiet, even lead up to the deadline, I think. Yeah. So. Yeah. Make some moves. Yeah. Go do some trades. Yeah. Yeah, please do. Plenty of teams, plenty of teams need stuff. You guys need things. They definitely Don't need Don't put things. off your shopping till late. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The holidays have taught us nothing. <laughs> That's true. I I always think teams are really procrastinating. It's probably partly procrastination. I know it's largely that they are gaining insight and intelligence every day that the season goes on. It's that they're learning about what they need and what other teams are offering and what their playoff odds are and all of that. You're, You're finding out more every day. But it's got to also be just that deadline and just the the human tendency not to act urgently until you have to. It's got to be partly that. It's partly that, although it's a very silly sort of thing because, I mean, granted, like, we'll compare it to writing. There are people, not me, I would never do this, who write the the best and the most very close to deadline mm-hmm. because the presence of the deadline helps to inspire some stuff and yep. gets you going and you write some things. But here's the difference. While it may have an impact on the eventual quality of the piece, it doesn't matter really. You don't gain anything in terms of clicks or or people reading your work or thinking you're smart or savvy by by filing early, except insofar as it affects the quality of your copy. Mm -hmm. But for some of these teams, the differences are quite narrow in their playoff odds, Mm -hmm. and every game that they could win would help things out. So it it does always sort of surprise me that we don't see a lot more activity early. It didn't end up working for the Mariners, for instance, but last year the Mariners were just like, hey, why don't we do all of our deadline dealing in like, what, April, May, and see if it helps to get us closer because we'll have, you know, we'll have these guys on the roster earlier and we'll win more games in the meantime. And And you have- Jerry did his selling early too. Right. (laughs) Jerry's always up for a trade. Yeah, Jerry's like- Jerry must be miserable. <laughs> this is his favorite time of year. It's like Christmas falling on a Wednesday. You don't enjoy it as yeah. much. Jerry's he's like, yeah, he's ready. He's out there. He's like, where's everyone else? Come on, guys. Let's he, go. There, he literally had quotes in the Seattle Times this year being like, we've been calling people. <laughs> <laughs> we've been making calls. Like, where's everybody, man? I might be editorializing his quote a little, but the sentiment is accurate. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if you're... And I understand that um, people tend to, in when they criticize teams for not making trades, forget that like it takes at least one other team in order to do a transaction. And so if everyone's waiting around, even if you want to move early, you might not be able to do that. And so these things are interconnected. But like if you're 
Cleveland, you're like, hey, we're only two games back. They probably won't do anything because they continue to drive me mad. <laughs> or, you know, you're the Brewers. You're staring up at the Cubs and Cardinals. You're like, wow, some starting pitching would really help. <laughs> Maybe we should make moves, you know. So I, I do remain surprised, you know, that nobody blinks earlier, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. By the way, since we're on the subject of Mets pitchers, however, briefly, we had talked earlier this year when Clayton Kershaw and Jacob deGrom faced each other about how that was not as exciting a matchup as it might have been at different points in those pitchers' careers. And at that time, deGrom was having sort of an unspectacular season. He had like a four-ish ERA through May. And since then, he has basically been Jacob deGrom. He's got a 2.05 ERA since the end of May in 10 starts. And I thought it was interesting that this week he made a start and it was a good one. He pitched against the Padres and shut them out for seven innings, nine strikeouts, one walk. And he actually threw more than 50% sliders. He threw 54% sliders in that start, which was a career high. And his previous career high for slider rate was also this month, July 5th. He threw 50% sliders. And before that, he'd never thrown, well, I guess in June, he threw 43% sliders. That was also his high. He had never thrown 40% sliders in a start in any point in his career before then. So his three highest slider rate starts have come just in the last month or so, which is probably not a coincidence. So... That's kind of interesting because that's the way the whole league is going. And I don't know in his case whether it's like an analytics-driven thing that they recommended to him or whether he adopted on his own. But that's kind of cool. Coming off one of the best pitching seasons in recent memory, he is making some changes. And I don't know if that's a response to his pedestrian start to the season or just observing league-wide trends or the Mets actually funneling information to their players and in a useful way, but he is making that adjustment. That seems, that, that seems I know, far-fetched, but, but <laughs> suddenly DeGrom is doing the like Patrick Corbin, Robbie Ray thing where you're just yeah. throwing tons of sliders and seems to work for most of those guys. Yeah, that is true. I'm going to ask you a question. I'm going to pull Sam and ask you a question that you're not at all prepared for, <laughs> okay. so you can tell me to buzz off if you want to. So the top 10 pitchers by Fangraph's War mm. this year. I'm going to ask you if you consider them appointment viewing or not. Okay. Because I'm just curious. Okay. You, and no one's going to hold you to this answer. It can change over time. Max Scherzer. Yes. Yes. Agreed. Lance Lynn. <laughs> I wonder if Michael Babman's listening. Michael, <laughs> close your ears. No. I will tell you the following. I probably watch more of the first three innings of a Lance Lynn start than any other starter just because i still don't get it yeah i still don't get this right i don't i i've i've read about it mm-hmm. i've researched it i understand what's at play yeah craig, i guess craig edwards is on the lance lynn beat for oh yeah he's on the beat yeah yeah he's he's keeping an eye on lance for us mm-hmm. but i still don't get it and so i watched the beginning hoping to be like oh yeah now i get it and i Still don't. Yeah. So uh, I watched the first three innings of a lot of Lance Lynn starts, and then I switched to someone else. He's another. Uh, he's another pitch selection change guy. Yeah. Fewer sinkers. Another league wide trend. Yeah. But yeah. Charlie Morton. Charlie Morton. I mean, appointment viewing. Like I can't honestly say I have thought to myself, Charlie Morton okay. start. Got to tune in. 
But yeah. there's no reason not to. Like, Charlie Morton right. is really good, and I think he's a fun pitcher to watch. So he's got the stuff. It's not like he is fluking his way into this. So no. so he should be appointment viewing, but has not been. Oh, what, a, what a raise thing to say. <laughs> should be watching more of, but yeah. meh. <laughs> And of course, the Rays now without Blake Snell for a while which seems <laughs> yes, that's concerning. Not so good for them. Not so great for them. Get excited about Brendan McKay. Oh wait, you already were. Mm, problems. Uh, Garrett Cole. Yeah, Garrett Cole probably is at this point yeah. since he is just raising the strikeout ceiling. It, it's amazing. Yeah, when that stat circulated recently about how he was so fast to 200 strikeouts, the more impressive part of that stat was not how quickly he got to 200 strikeouts, but that Randy Johnson got there faster. In 2001, yeah. <laughs> when no one was striking out people the way they are today, which is no. something that I, I tried to ask him about on our somewhat notorious Randy Johnson interview <laughs> episode. I, I just, I, I was, just really want to talk about one thing. Yes, he did. He just really did. He really did. And yeah, I tried to make that point to him, though, that like when he pitched in the late 90s, early 2000s, it was like 2019 baseball, like on those days and not on all the other days because no one else was pitching like him. But like Randy Johnson's strikeout stats stack up to like the best pitchers today, even though the league wide rate has grown by leaps and bounds since then. So he was such an outlier that what Garrett Cole is doing just made me appreciate what Johnson did even more. Yeah. Yeah. We've already talked about DeGrom, Mm -hmm. Steven Strasburg. Well, Strasburg has been appointment viewing, and his debut was like the ultimate appointment viewing. And he's having a really excellent season. Michael Bauman just wrote about it for us at The Ringer. So should be. I guess it it could be. Should be. He's really good. Yeah. I I think that we're going to look back on Strasburg's career and just feel like we never properly calibrated how much we were – I think so too. Uh, sh- supposed to appreciate him in any given moment and how much we should have been watching him in any given moment. I just feel like we have, because of how how much hype there was around his debut and as a prospect, eh, we just, we've never gotten it quite right. right. I don't think we've ever gotten it quite right. Yeah, he's been almost a, a disappointment, but <laughs> because Which we were expecting what? like, you right. know, the world, but he's right. he's been fantastic. Yeah. Uh, Shane Bieber. Well, I am invested in Shane Bieber's success because he was my breakout pick in this year's yeah. staff predictions post, so I'm, I'm feeling good about that. He's very good, but I cannot honestly say that he's <laughs> appointment viewing. Hunjin Ryu, I think, is appointment viewing for me, uh-huh. in part because of him and also just because that Dodgers team is really fun to watch. But he is he's been quite, quite good mm-hmm. and quite fun yeah. to watch. Yeah. Yep. I will always watch Zach Granke. Yes. So he is appointment viewing for me mm-hmm. at nine. Nine. Wow. What a year. <laughs> we gotta, I, I got to get somebody to write about Zach Granke. It's time for a Zach Granke <laughs> post. And then Patrick Corbin. Mm, no. No. <laughs> no. I would say that of the, the guys immediately following that type five that I, I would consider Chris Sale of late to be appointment viewing. Mm-hmm. That race star was super fun. Jose Barrios is appointment viewing for me because I really like watching him throw a breaking ball. So, yeah, there's some guys who are uh, just outside the top ten who I would say are appointment viewing. Yeah. Hmm. Walker Bueller's Fun. up there. Yeah. Yeah. Giolito. Yeah. A lot of appointments. Oh, We've we got busy schedules. I know. We are very busy. <laughs> okay, so that was my that was my digression away from what, what you actually wanted to talk about this episode. But 
I, just, I don't know you what know, I want to talk about. Uh-huh. <laughs> the digressions are what I want to talk about usually. Yeah. So, but I guess since we weren't maybe finished with the Giants, I, I think yeah. I would just love to know what's been going on in Farhan's head over the yeah. last few weeks. The Giants actually lost a game this week. They lost a game on Thursday. So that was a change of pace. But when teams are tanking, when we say they're tanking or rebuilding, I think for the most part, their executives and their players and staff want them to win on a daily basis. Like the number one pick, I think, is kind of overrated, especially these days. Maybe it mattered more in the past, but it only helps you so much. If it's the right year, of course, it can be a difference maker. But the difference most years between the number one pick and the number two or three, I mean, the, the gap between one and any other position, I think, is larger than the gaps between any other positions but still it's usually not going to be the difference but i think the benefit from a rebuild or tanking or whatever just comes from setting your sights on the future and saying we're going to operate on this timeline while other teams are operating on this more urgent accelerated timeline and we'll be content trading the guys who are good now for the guys who will be good later and that will benefit us in the long run but while you're in that down period you don't want to win 50 games i don't think for the most part and like on a day-to-day basis you're probably in a better frame of mind if you're winning every day and so farhan and the giants probably did not expect to contend this year they probably expected to sell off a lot of pieces and embark on this rebuild and yet i'm sure they wanted to be competitive and give their fans an entertaining team to watch and yet at this point it is verging on the point where it maybe is affecting their plans or what they think would be best for the team in the long run so i'd really like to know just is he rooting for the team on a day-to-day basis because like if he thinks that they're not going to contend which i think is likely and their playoff odds are up to six percent now and it's all wild card odds and yet they're so close that it's really going to be unpalatable to some people if they do sell off a bunch of pieces in the next few days he has to be somewhat conflicted about this Oh, yeah. I mean, if if ever you wanted to read like a an accurate TikTok of, <laughs> you know, a front office yeah. in the week before the deadline, I would put yes. <laughs> I would certainly put that Giants team up there. I think that oh, two or three weeks ago, I would have put the Rangers in the same conversation, although I think that the the right course of action is getting increasingly clear for yeah. them. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I, it, you also, you know, these are not that anyone has to feel bad for front office personnel like they're fine they get to work in baseball professionally and like pursue a ring they're living their dreams but i i always think it's funny how fans react to decisions one way or the other around contention as if it is the sole you know at the sole discretion of baseball operations when we we know for a fact that it's not right like ownership has a stake in all of this clearly and they tend to make that stake known at moments that are sometimes uh inopportune from a baseball ops perspective and i don't say that with like special knowledge of what's going on in san francisco but i do wonder is he like really dreading getting a phone call from ownership (laughs) (laughs) it's like oh don't win because i don't want my phone to buzz because then we're gonna have to go you know you just wonder whose calls he's dodging (laughs) yeah (laughs) 
I can't dodge them forever, right? So I would love to hear sort of how things have unfolded for them behind the scenes. Mm -hmm. You know, as I've talked to, and you've probably had this experience too, as I've talked to like front office types over the last couple of weeks, I've been struck by how much uncertainty there has been even for them, not only with respect to the market generally, but just their own teams and what's going to end up making the most sense for them. So I think that not because we had a consolidated deadline, but more because of the competitive landscape, there's just a lot more indecision than there's been maybe in prior mm-hmm. years. And without fail, everyone I've talked to has said, like, it would really help that the Giants would just start losing already. Because <laughs> then we'd know right. what, who's around. Yeah. We could get a better sense of who's actually available so that we could either, you know, make a move or move on. But mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I'm sure people want to hear trade talk, but at this point, trade deadline speculation has a very short shelf life, and I'm sure we'll be talking a lot next week about what could happen or what has happened, so we won't date ourselves too much. But interesting things will happen eventually. (laughs) They're just taking their time. Probably. Should we talk about Tulo a little bit since Troy announced his retirement this week? and. I assume that Rachel McDaniel is in mourning somewhere. I hope that she will write about Tulo perhaps at some point. I don't know. Yeah, I have I have asked. <laughs> we have to see how how the muse yes. how the muse uh, hits her. But yeah, it is it is always a funny thing to have to write about your your guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, as you've made the transition into being a more professional writer yeah. type, I had that thought about Felix yesterday. I was like, oh, I guess I should start getting this ready. Man, I don't want to do it though. So, yeah. Um, but yeah, Tulo, it's, I mean, it makes, it makes sense. I think there's something dignified in knowing like when your moment has passed mm-hmm. and getting ready to do another thing. But yeah, every time we have these retirements, you're just like, wow, tr- like Troy Tulowitzki is 34 and change mm-hmm. and I am 33. <laughs> and let me tell you, I don't think I'm ever going to be able to retire. <laughs> Well, we don't have to. We, we can just we keep don't going until we're yeah, old we and decrepit. Just keep trudging yeah. along. <laughs> it's he's just he's just maybe one of the all time like what would have been if he could have stayed healthy, guys. Because mm-hmm. boy, did he have some some moments that where you were like, wow, this dude's really special, special especially defensively. It was just like kind of incredible. Yeah, like the bat spoke for itself, but right. I think the defense was really fun. Yeah, he wasn't like he was much better than the like a guy who had a single spectacular season or like he had all the yeah. tools and you wonder like what could he have been like he was a fully actualized like hall of fame level player caliber yeah he just didn't get to do it as long as we would have liked for him to do but yeah zach cram wrote a nice appreciation of his career for the ringer which i will link to plug in lots of ringer links today good company man it's okay he had a lot of signature moments he played on fun teams like he was on the 2007 Rockies team. He, of course, was on the 2015 Blue Jays team. He was a big part of both of those, and those were very memorable teams. So he had that. He had a lot of like individual moments and plays, but he was like by far the best shortstop in baseball and like simultaneously probably the best hitting and best fielding shortstop, which is why he was like ahead above everyone else it wasn't just like he was a good hitter for the position or he was like Andrelton Simmons or something like he was just the best of both worlds for yeah for half a, a decade for you know yeah. maybe more than half a decade so 
I just, I wish it could have lasted longer, but it was really impressive while it lasted. Yeah, and I think the perception of Rockies hitters can be unfair in both directions, right? Where we tend to, you know, average fans tend to inflate how good Rockies hitters are without factoring in cores. And sometimes sabermetrically inclined writers can make people sort of mentally discount how good guys are when they play at Colorado, even though mm-hmm. um, we have park adjusted stats. But Tula was just like, no one was ever like, eh, that bat though. Yeah. Don't know about that. You know, he had years where he had, you know, WRC pluses in the 140s. Mm-hmm. So he was just one of those guys were like, yeah, this is a really, this is a really good player on a Hall of Fame trajectory. And if only he could have stayed healthy, I think we would have, you know, we would have seen him there. Yeah. Bummer. Yeah, I appreciate that, like, even this year when he barely played, he played in five games, he had 13 plate appearances, but he still had a 118 WRC+. plus. Yeah. <laughs> he, he doubled and homered in his yep. very, very brief, so it was like when he could get on the field. He was, I think, diminished physically these past few years with Toronto and, and briefly the Yankees, where yeah. even when he was healthy, he had finally gotten to the point where it wasn't, like, hurt or great. It was, yeah. like, healthy or quasi-healthy. And just kind of average-ish because he'd had so many injuries that they had taken their toll on on his skills, I think. But still, I I kept hoping that there would be like a late career renaissance Tulo season where like in his 30s we would get to see it for one more year. And the thing about him was that like he injured everything. So in a way it was more discouraging, but it was also like you could talk yourself into him eventually having a healthy run because like it wasn't like he had some debilitating chronic like back issue or something where it's like oh he's just not going to get over that or like you know he tore his knee apart and it was never the same after that or something it was just like he'd hurt everything like he'd hurt his ankle and then he'd hurt his quad and then he'd hurt his calf or you know then he'd hurt his wrist or and it was just like Maybe it's a fluke. Maybe it's like he's just hurting all these different body parts and it doesn't mean anything. But ultimately, it probably does mean something just about his ability to recover or whatever it is, you know, health as a skill, etc. And he didn't yeah. have that one, but he had all the other ones. Yeah, he sure did. Mm, too low. Be well. Yep. He he's already I learned not on Yankees broadcast or the Blue Jays broadcast. I don't remember what game I was watching. He's going to like take on some sort of volunteer coaching role at the yes. University of Texas. That's right. And so. we were talking about that in our Slack channel. Like he didn't go there as a no. player. <laughs> and evidently it's just that he was like friends with a, a couple Texans. <laughs> it was like cool. <laughs> yeah. I mean if that's what it's hard to decide what to do after you retire. That's a difficult transition for any player who's been doing it his entire life so if uh, that's how you just decide your soft landing your first phase of your post playing career then that's fine yeah there are worse places to retire than austin so yeah he was teammates with houston street and drew stubbs that was it they're i guess they're both texans and they were like hey go work here (laughs) that worked cool yeah sure yeah well go have a nice retirement eat some tacos enjoy Mm -hmm. yourself too low yeah, and hopefully we can remember him for the good times in addition to just the, the lost promise and what might yeah. have been. And Zach pointed out in his piece that he ended up with an identical war 
to Nomar Garciaparra, which is <laughs> fitting because those are both guys who were Hall of Fame level talents on Hall yeah. of Fame trajectories and then were just done in by a series of injuries. It's the same sort of story. Yeah. Mm. Well, be well, Tulo. Yes, please do. So I guess we could wrap up maybe by talking about something I wrote. Another ringer link, but on Friday I have a piece up about strategy, the strategy, yeah. the strategy that Sam and I have been discussing on and off on the podcast for weeks now, inspired by a listener email. I wrote about it. It just, I couldn't get it out of my head and I had to get it out of my system. And so I ended up writing a very long article about yeah. this, which I did not expect. And Quite good. Well, thank you. I yeah. enjoyed working on it very much because it seemed like sort of a wonky thing, and it is, but there were a lot of people who were enthusiastically prepared to talk about it. So for those who have not been following along, this is the idea of pulling pitchers in the middle of plate appearances, making mid-plate appearance pitching changes in order to get the element of surprise on the batter or maybe to take advantage of some matchup. Like, you know, that your first pitcher, he's good at getting ahead of hitters and you have a guy in the bullpen who's good at finishing them off. And so you pair them or maybe someone in the bullpen's got a great slider and you know that this hitter is susceptible to sliders. So just being flexible about when you bring guys in and knowing that hitters would really not like this because yeah. <laughs> hitters like to see the pitchers and they get better as plate appearances go on, not only as they face them multiple times within the same game, but also as they see more pitches within the same at bat. And to bring a guy in, particularly with two strikes, let's say, and not give hitters the luxury of taking that first pitch just to time the guy and see his stuff and see his release point, that would be a very difficult situation to be in. And you can see it in games. There's data I have in my piece that when hitters are facing a pitcher for the first time, even if it's not their first at bat in the game, they are much more likely to take that first pitch than they are right. if it's a pitcher they've already seen in the game. So you're really putting hitters at a disadvantage here. And much to my delight, it turns out there's this whole cult of the mid-plate appearance pitching change <laughs> yeah. in college. There's this brotherhood of college coaches who've kind of pioneered this idea on their own. And the strategy has been spreading in Division One now for a few years. And I tried to trace it back to its origin, the patient zero, coach zero of the mid-plate appearance pitching change. And it turns out to be a guy named John Cohen, who is a very accomplished college coach. He is the athletic director at Mississippi State now. But He's been the head coach at a few schools, including Mississippi State, and when he was at Kentucky in the mid-2000s, he started doing this, and the origin story is kind of interesting. Like When he was a player, and, and he was a college player himself and briefly a minor league player with the Twins as well, and he was a hitter. And his college coach would have these sort of sped up games, which other teams do too. And yeah. they called them count games where hitters would come up to the plate and they'd start with a 3-1 count or a 1-2 count. It would just alternate. And the idea was mostly just to speed up the game, accelerate the pace. But having been in that situation himself as a player, he knew that to start an at-bat with a 1-2 count is very difficult and yeah. so he figured, well, if this is so difficult for me, then why don't I put other hitters in that difficult position? And when he became a head coach, he did it and he started doing it a lot. And he found, at least anecdotally, that it seemed to work really well. And so 
many members of his coaching staff have now gone on to be head coaches elsewhere at Auburn and Kentucky and various other places. He worked with Wes Johnson, who is now the Twins pitching coach, and Wes Johnson did it a bunch of other places. A few other coaches have independently developed this idea and started doing it at Dallas Baptist and NC State and various other places. So it's becoming more common now in college. And as college coaches now cross over to pro ball and even to the majors in Wes Johnson's case, I really have to think that we are not far away from seeing this far-fetched idea or so we thought when we first discussed it happen in a big league game. I enjoyed this for a lot of reasons, this article and the idea of it for a lot of reasons, the first of which is that it just continues to highlight the discrepancy that currently exists between how college programs are thinking about pitching versus how they think about hitting. And Mm. it, you know, the, this is different than some of the more specific player development stuff that you see at the college level that ends up being quite useful to guys after they get drafted and move on to the pros. But it just seems like there is a general willingness to innovate and think strategically on the pitching side that, you know, the the hitting side has not yet caught up to. So it was just interesting to see another iteration of that, right? Yeah. I mean, in this case, I, I don't know if it's like a college thing or whether it's just a hitting versus pitching thing. Like what is the hitting equivalent of this? Yeah. I don't know that there, I don't know that there are necessarily, I can't think, I can't think of what one would be, but just all these innovations, like the the opener and bullpenning and pulling your starter. It's like, you can do that with pitchers, but what's because you have so much more control over the situation with hitters. I mean, making a a mid plate appearance (laughs) pinch hitting that's, that's just going to hurt you. So yeah, that wouldn't, (laughs) wouldn't make any sense. So that was interesting to hear. And especially that this one seems to predate some of those other um, sort yeah. of player dev innovations. Um, I would be, and you note this as a potential pitfall of the strategy and something that might hold it back. The the psychology of this, mm-hmm. as you try to get players to buy in at the major league level, is fascinating. Yeah. Because on the one hand, if you're Dylan Batances, you walk away from this feeling amazing, <laughs> right? You are being put in a position to do the thing that you do the very best of anyone in baseball in a high leverage spot. You are being counted on. You are splendid. <laughs> if you are the guy he is replacing, you feel like garbage <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because you are not being trusted to get one more lousy strike. Right. And you did your job. Like you, and you, you got ahead of the hitter. Exactly. You're poised you to finish him off. And then it's like, yeah. Nope. <laughs> yeah, someone it's else not, gets it's, the strikeout and all the credit for the work that right. you did setting up the, the hitter too. Right, it's not as if you have fallen behind 3-0 and your manager comes out and right. is just like, "Hey man, you don't have it tonight. It happens, mm-hmm. but we're just gonna we got to get back in this thing. It's an important at bat." No, you've done exactly what you're supposed to. You've poised your team to take advantage of one of the like the worst count a hitter can get into, and your manager's like, nah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Someone can throw that one strike we need better than you. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I, oh. it's got to be a tough thing. I, I talked to a bunch of college players who've been on one end or the other, hitters and pitchers, and the hitters confirmed that, yeah, this really sucks and they don't like it. And pitchers confirmed that they think it does give them an advantage, but that there are occasional ruffled feathers and players who don't really like it. But 
They mostly, I think, to a man said that guys got over that because it does seem to work and you can only complain so much. In one sense, like, you can't tell in any one instance whether it worked because, like, if you're up one, two on a guy, usually you're going to get him out regardless. So if you get him out, that doesn't necessarily mean that the strategy benefited you. You might have very well, odds are you would have gotten him out anyway. But, you know, you do it enough times. and, And I think just conceptually and theoretically, it should work. But I think, yeah, they said that is a problem and it requires some finesse and coaching and Mm -hmm. communication and explaining this is why we're doing this and don't be shocked if we do do it and it's not because we don't trust you, even though it kind of is in in a way. Um, (laughs) And they said that guys got on board because they like winning and they understand why it makes sense and if it works, then you can't complain that much. But yeah, I mean... It is something that guys wouldn't like, and maybe you've got bigger egos in the big leagues than you do in college, so it's something of an obstacle. But like all these things that have happened, you could say the same thing. It's like pulling the starter instead of letting him go deep into games. That was an ego thing. That was something starters didn't like, or the opener, that was something people didn't like. I mean, all these things are like... You know, you can't count on the traditional roles. We're going to do whatever we can to get out here, and you have to be somewhat selfless about it. And so I don't know that this is harder than those things that have already happened. Well, and I, I think that it, and you note this in the piece, you know, baseball is sort of is sort of odd compared to, to a sport like football where, you know, you have concepts from you know, college offenses or defensive schemes that make their way into the NFL all the time, right? And there's a lot of guys who move up from the college ranks to then join pro staffs, Mm -hmm. and they bring those ideas with them. And you just seem to have more sort of college back and forth than you do in Major League Baseball, you know, the twins excluded, right? And so it is very neat to see a a strategy sort of come the other way, because it suggests that there might be other things that we could potentially glean from the amateur game that would be useful at the pro level though you know we might just rule change our way out of this being particularly useful (laughs) yeah (laughs) um so so they should they should forestall it for a year so that we can have some of this because i don't imagine that it would happen all that often yeah I mean, there's already the rule coming next year about right. how you have to face three guys face three, unless yeah. it's the end of an inning. So you wouldn't be doing this constantly. And that's one of the obstacles is that in college, you have much lighter schedules, fewer games, and you have 35-man rosters. Right. So you just have a lot more people. Yeah. Which, you know, I'm not – this isn't necessarily going to be burning many more guys because it's not like you're just going to be bringing in guys for a pitch. It's just like you'd bring them in a pitch or two earlier than you would otherwise, right. basically. So like – It's not like you're going to be going through arms willy-nilly, but I think those things make it harder at the major league level, but not impossible. There are times I talked to one executive who's quoted anonymously in the piece, and he was saying, you know, you'd have to pick your spots, and it wouldn't be something you'd do all the time, but currently it's something you do 0% of the time, and that's probably not as many times as you should be doing it. And he said he thinks it'll happen, and that once someone does it, we'll see more people doing it just as we have with the opener and I guess in the the last few minutes that we have we should talk about whether this is actually a 
good thing or not because like (laughs) the feedback to my tweet about this thus far i think people are enjoying the article but they are not enjoying the idea of this actually happening (laughs) i've gotten a lot of quote tweets that are like nope (laughs) and so i think people people are saying like baseball is an entertainment product and uh even if this is optimizing the game even if this is smart even if it's an advantage they do not want to see this happen and and i mentioned that in the article that like a lot of the things that we say are smart that maybe we advocate then they happen and we're like oh no we don't actually like this and we've talked about that with bullpenning and kind of missing having the starter go the whole game yeah and, and in this case like it would be fun i think the first few times it happens like the novelty i'd be very excited if it happened But then if it happens a lot, then, you know, what are you really getting? You're just probably getting hitters looking overmatched, more strikeouts and more rallies snuffed out. I think that it would be fine because I don't think it would happen very often. Mm -hmm. And so and and I maybe am especially inclined to think it would be fine because this is not an equivalent from a strategy perspective at all. And the leverage is obviously different but i'm kind of over position players pitching mm. like that isn't fun and novel anymore you know <laughs> i meant to talk about ML- that today because yeah. of stevie wilkerson and yes the, okay that was that great was <laughs> that was the first fun. ever but, position player pitcher save and throwing yeah, sub like, 60 mile per hour <laughs> that was yeah that was, awesome. that was that was wild i i will admit that i i fell asleep uh-huh. Um, before it happened because it was late and I was tired and I was like, why are they still playing this game? First big leaguer has ever gone by Stevie, by the way. That's a, a yeah. choice. I like that. Yeah. yeah. No. I like Stevie more than Scooter in a way that makes me think that my aesthetic preferences are not perfectly consistent. <laughs> yeah. um, that outing but- was just like, I guess it, it speaks to the, the importance of just like throwing strikes because like yeah. it seemed like the Angels were just either waiting for him not to throw strikes and walk them or they just couldn't time him because he was throwing yeah. so slow. So slow. It's like good hitters. It's like Cole Calhoun and Albert Pujols and they're yeah. like gearing up to try to crush these pitches and couldn't do <laughs> could it. not do it. Could not hit could him. Could not do it. Oh, uh, it was great. Yeah, I, I fell asleep, but before... I have been texting with a friend, like, why is this game still happening? Why am I still watching an Orioles-Angels <laughs> extra innings game? Yeah. I'm going to go to bed. And then in the morning, I was informed what had happened. And my buddy said, you know, Stevie Wilkerson picked up the save lobbying 54-mile-an-hour grenades at pool holes. And I was just like, that's a sentence I never expected to read <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> ever in my life, right. <laughs> you know, let alone in – I don't know. I guess in 2019, it's the most likely of any of the times that you would read that. But what the mm-hmm. heck? Um, so I am I'm set on position player pitching, mm-hmm. uh, and this would not replace that in terms of strategy or efficacy or any of those things. But I think that like having moments where baseball breaks a little bit is entertaining and fun. And because this would probably be naturally limited in terms of how often it is deployed. I think it would be fine and it could be cool and interesting and it would result in it it certainly would result in some amount of you know strikeout increase that we might get kind of nervous about but also there would be times that it didn't work and then those times would be great fun also Mm -hmm. right because it wouldn't work all the time you would have a guy come in and you're like i feel very confident and then (laughs) and then yeah the times when it backfired would be a lot of fun like when a team did this and just like 
did something that you could consider gimmicky or unsporting and the odds are really against you and you you pull it out anyway. I know that's what people sometimes say about pitchers hitting that the times when it sure. works justify all the other times. I disagree just because <laughs> they're they're really rare and I don't like they're those real. guys hitting because it's just not that much fun to watch usually, but Right. But in this case, if if a, another team did that and they're pulling out all the stops to get you and they're using this trick and then you win the matchup anyway, that'd be really cool. Right, because you're you you are you are putting your best foot forward, right? You're putting yes. Dallin Batansis ahead in the count uh, up in a critical situation. That is like the very best that you can do. And then imagine if he like gives up a home run, mm-hmm. you're gonna be like that batter is incredible because they. <laughs> You know, you have strength against strength. It's great. Yes, right. It was, it's like the end of that Yankees-Twins game. I was watching the Twins broadcast the next day, and the Twins announcers were saying how that game was just fun, and there wasn't actually, you know, everyone was doing their job, and it just happened that one guy did his job a little bit better. But, like, Max Kepler did exactly what he was supposed to do. He drove the ball. It was going to win the game. And then Aaron Hicks was like, no, it's not. That's so fun when you have that strength against strength matchup. Mm -hmm. And granted, sometimes you wouldn't, right? Sometimes Dylan Batances is going to come in ahead in the count, and the batter he's facing is going to be pretty bad. And any batter he's facing when he's ahead in the count is going to be pretty bad anyway. But Mm -hmm. it's just exciting. It's 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 tense. Yeah. It's tense. It feels tense. Mm-hmm. You're gonna sit there and watch. You're gonna sit there and watch the batter as he's watching Batances come in and throw like right. a couple of warm-up pitches, but not very many because you want to take as much advantage as you can. Mm-hmm. I think it would be great theater. And then if we That's get annoyed true. about it, we'll have something else to yell about. And we yeah. love yelling about stuff. And we're gonna lose some cool stuff with the three batter minimum. Yeah. We're gonna lose some tactical trickery like the yeah. Wade Miley Curly Ogden maneuver. We're gonna right. lose most of the Waxahachi swaps that we've seen pitchers playing positions as the Rays did again this year that's going to be very difficult to do under those new rules so this could compensate and yeah Zach Cram made the point to me and I mentioned it in the article that this is like baseball's version of the alley-oop kind of I don't know if it's as fun to watch but it's like one guy setting up another guy and the other guy jamming it home and so I wrote that, you know, the the first pitcher getting up on the hitter is the alley, and then the other guy coming in to finish him off is the oop, and so I think we should call him the opener. Oh, I like that a lot. <laughs> I, I don't oh. know if that's going to catch on, but... <laughs> no, you know why it will? Because when you say it, you can't get Manamana stuck in your head, so it'll take take the country by storm. Yeah. Last thing you've got to go. I know I just wanted to mention because so many people have responded to that by saying like this would be bad for entertainment value. It is a conflict, I think, because a lot of us do really like this strategy stuff. And I was reading an interview today with Stephanie Epstein, the excellent baseball writer and reporter for Sports Illustrated. And she was saying that when she was a kid, she thought sports were dumb and boring and that athletes weren't interesting until she heard about the infield fly rule. And she realized that players would sometimes choose or, you know, if not for the rule, would choose to like let a ball drop and get an extra out, which is not fun, really, like recording an extra out. But the strategy of it is interesting. And that's what got her hooked. And she's turned out to be someone who does this for a career because like that was what initially got her interested in sports, that there was the strategic tactical element to it. And that is something that gets me going. It gets me excited. And I don't know how to balance those two sides of things because sometimes the innovative, optimal tactic 
can ultimately make the game a little bit less entertaining, but I remain intrigued by those tactics. And I'm not saying that we have to celebrate them above all else, but I do admire someone who's willing to do something that no one's been willing to do before. And I admire cleverness and taking advantage of the rules. I mean, within reason, if if you can do it and you're not hurting a person, then sure. And that's what this falls under. So those sides of my personality are are warring because I want balls in play and I want people to like the baseball that we see on the field. But I also do really get intrigued by this kind of idea. So I don't know. I just have to accept that about myself and try to reconcile it as I can. I think that this one you probably get a pass on because while it does involve a pitching change, which adds some time, it is, I think, mildly, it's only moderately disruptive to the general Mm -hmm. understood flow of baseball. And so it might be, it might be the perfect strategy because it doesn't really do a whole lot to switch things around. You're not getting rid of starters, but you do get to have a, a little, a little fun bit of, bit of strategy and trickeration. So I think, I think you're okay. I don't think you okay. should feel bad about it. All right. Thanks for <laughs> assuaging my conscience and <laughs> absolving me of yes. this sin. All right. So we will wrap up there and we'll talk again next week. Sounds good. All right, that will do it for today and for this week. Thanks to you all for listening. You can, and dare we say should, support this podcast on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectivelywild and signing up to pledge some small monthly amount and help keep the podcast going. Get yourself some perks. The following five listeners have already pledged their support. Patrick Gordon, David Dudley, Evan Davies, James Cubbon, John Tower Ackerman, and Nick Barbie. Thanks to all of you. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash Effectively Wild and you can rate and review and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and other podcast platforms. You can contact me and Meg and Sam via email at podcast at fangraphs.com or via the Patreon investing system if you are a supporter. You can go get my book. It's called The MVP Machine, How Baseball's New Nonconformists Are Using Data to Build Better Players. It got reviewed in the Washington Post this week. The review said, in the MVP Machine, Lindbergh and Sachik make a convincing and faith-restoring case that genuine, unadulterated miracles can happen in baseball. It's an awfully nice thing to say. That is what got us excited about the topic. Some of these player transformations really do seem almost miraculous. Although, of course, there's science behind them. But that science is exciting. Lots of science is exciting. Dylan Higgins was off today, so you can thank me for editing assistance. We hope you have a wonderful weekend, and we will be back to talk to you in what's sure to be a very eventful early next week. Ah!